Hey, this is Vanessa. If you listen to public radio, you may have noticed that many stations just finished up their fall pledge drive. Well, we're sort of having our fall pledge drive. If you could spare just a dollar a month, that's one dollar an episode, that would really help us out. That's the cost of one song on iTunes, or like one album a year. It's the cost of one cup of coffee a month. But instead, you get a finely crafted, sound-rich audio story delivered straight to your phone or computer. You can donate to the show by going to nocturnpodcast.org and clicking on the donate button at the top of the page. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The built environment consists of structures that humans make, including spaces where people live, work, and play. For the most part, these places are inhabited during the day, but at night, new aspects of the built environment are revealed. A building empty of people and activity, stripped of its purpose, suddenly seems almost naked. A jungle gym becomes an abstract sculpture. Some people are drawn to explore these spaces, not to vandalize or create mischief, just to see and to appreciate. But society has a name for that. It's called trespassing. I kind of learned from my dad to love trespassing. That's Henry. I grew up in the Bay Area of California. I'm a designer slash artist, and I'm 25. I'm a creative type, so when I was very young, my parents perceived that I was kind of understimulated, I guess, in school. And they took me to some specialist or something who told my parents that I I should go on more adventures or do more activities or something like that. So my dad started taking me on what he called adventure walks when I was like under 10 years old, where he basically told me that it was okay and showed me how to trespass. (laughs) trespass. <laughs> we would, uh, you know, climb over fences and get into construction sites and he'd explore with me. My dad actually has a saying for it. He told me it's only illegal if you get caught. Henry's family lived in Walnut Creek, a suburb of the Bay Area. Walnut Creek's a sleepy suburb. When it gets dark and all the stores close and everything, by 10.30, the streets are largely empty. As I got into my teens and later high school, there's not too much to do at night. So my friends and I took to walking at night, which developed into adventures. When you're a teenager in suburbia, no one wants you to hang out anywhere, you know. You're not really wanted, you're just bored, and uh, you don't exactly know where to be and what to do with yourself. But one of the reasons why the night is so great at that age is it's got a quality of anarchy to it, benevolent anarchy. And there are no grumpy adults or authority figures. They're all asleep or doing more important things. And they're all far, far away. You can just be yourself and explore and hang out and not have to worry about the judgments of others. And uh, it's a very friendly feeling.
one of the best parts of exploring at night is that there is the stillness. You know that the vast majority of people are either in their homes, not paying attention to the outside world, or straight up asleep. And there's no one on the road. The animals are out. They know it's okay <laughs> to come out and explore. There's a hush over everything. It's very calming and very liberating. I've heard it described as uh, psychic noise. <laughs> you know, whenever when the world is awake, there's a psychic noise. It's it's like a combination of people talking and the white noise of people moving around a city. But all of that fades off into a hush, and the nature sounds come through, and you really only hear like the wind or owls or cats. We would just wander mostly. The, the built environment is just super cool, especially places that you aren't allowed to go. The main objective is just to see like the architecture and explore every little nook and cranny, just discovering secrets. Parking garages are super weird at night if you think about like they spend all this time and money to build this three-dimensional space that's full of empty ground, and then when cars aren't in it, it's a useless structure for anything else. It's just taking up airspace. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> Buildings that are like condemned for demolition are super cool too, to just explore the environment that people used to frequent every day for work and have it be covered in dust. We did go to a military base at one point, and we found all of these bunkers that uh, had labels on them of like toxic chemicals. It's tempting to assume that someone who enjoys trespassing on private property is a thrill seeker. I wondered if that was the case for Henry. Not really, no. I, I've always been pretty averse to like direct contact with authority. It makes me pretty uncomfortable. And uh, I feel that they always assume the worst about people's intentions. So I've never I've never really had any positive experience with that and fleeing is not I'm kind of risk averse, I guess, when it comes to trespassing. So I, I go into it with the mindset of like how not to get caught, I suppose. We used to do like big we would make events of going into specific places that were a little riskier and I would like scope it out on Google Earth the day before and go in the, the, the most risk-free way. We just didn't want to contact authority or bother anyone if possible. Contacting authority is, of course, a potential occupational hazard when you're trespassing, particularly when it's on the police firing range. It was deemed to be worth the risk. The objective, the whole point of going to the firing range, aside from exploring what would otherwise be a forbidden space, was in hopes of collecting bullet casings. I knew from past experience in more rural areas that like rifle and revolver shells are kind of beautiful. They're made of brass and they're weighty, and I thought it might be a good material to use for an art project, or just a cool object to have on one's shelf. I also hoped to um, maybe get a rubber bullet our police department for Walnut Creek was very overfunded, it seemed. And they had like a bomb sniffing robot and a SWAT team and all this crazy stuff. So I was hoping I would find a rubber bullet or something cool like that. 
I was with at least three other people. Kevin, who's a good friend of mine. Jordan, who's another good friend of ours. And Kyle. They're all artists. It was one of the times when I came home from college. So it was either my freshman or sophomore year. We did stuff like this fairly often, especially at this stage in our lives. We were all back in town for very short periods of time. So kind of felt like when we do get the chance to get together, we, we have to go on an adventure and spend our time wisely. I would say it was around 11. We usually waited to go out at night until it was pretty late just to avoid the last dregs of people coming home from work and just to let everybody fall asleep and kind of let the night calm down. The night was overcast with patches of open sky. There was a breeze, so the clouds were moving low and kind of fast. It was hazy, like there was a, there was a glow around all of the street lamps. It was dew on the grass. The main sound of the night was wind. Other than that, it was pretty quiet. All the nocturnal animals seemed to be out. We saw a lot of cats. I'm not sure if they were feral or not, but a lot of cats and maybe a possum. I know the town pretty well, so I knew that the firing range was there on the edge of town uh, past the golf course. But did a bit of research on Google Earth to see what the best way to walk there would be. That would both be a cool route to explore and also to stay out of people's way. You have to go through some uh, developed areas after you wander through the golf course to get to the firing range for the police department. Outside of the golf course was essentially a big fenced-in square of earth with an earthen wall on one side that I guess the bullets went into. We drove to the neighborhood adjacent to the back boundary of the golf course and parked on a suburban street out of the way and then walked to the back edge of the golf course to hop a fence. Most of the golf course is circled by an eight foot tall chain link fence with barbed wire on top. But back where the golf course shares a boundary with the open space, there's nothing but trails back there, so it's kind of more of a cattle fence, which is like the, the three and a half foot high stakes with three lines of barbed wire in between. And I remember crossing through one of those. It was relatively easy. I typically avoid flashlights because they draw attention. And when you're walking through the night for long enough, it never gets dark enough in a suburb like Walnut Creek that you would won't be able to see with your night vision. So my friends and I got through the fence. We walked down the fairway. Golf courses are really cool at night because they're kind of absurd in their landscaping. If you imagine a golf course is just a public park, it stops making sense. The structure and design of it, it's very whimsical, kind of goofy looking. When there's no golfers on it, it just becomes a really well-kept park in a way, which I enjoy. So we made our way through the trees, across the holes, and um, the firing range is up on a hill behind the parking lots and not well lit at night. So we made our way up to the firing range. 
and walked around its perimeter to start to see if we could find a way in. It was uh, kind of just an open area encircled by a fence with a bunch of barbed wire on top. There's the kind of the, the razor wire that was like the super nasty kind. <laughs> so we knew we couldn't go over the fence, but part of the perimeter was just the wall, the back wall of this low bungalow type building. And there was a dumpster nearby that we rolled it up against the wall and hopped up on top of those plastic lids that are on the dumpster. And then from there, we were able to haul ourselves up onto the roof of the bungalow and scramble across the roof and drop down on the other side inside of the fenced in perimeter. It wasn't very stealthy. I'm sure it wasn't graceful. When you're in that kind of situation, there's always the rush of adrenaline. Your breath quickens, you feel very amped up, very high energy, a feeling of like accomplishment because you've actually gotten inside of a space that's typically forbidden to the public, a feeling of discovery, of secrets. <laughs> we definitely felt giddy. We're definitely very happy to be there. But overall, our interactions with each other were minor and very hushed. We were whispering to each other, trying to be as stealthy as possible, because while we were daring enough to go get in there, we really didn't want to be caught or didn't want to be in a situation where we'd have to flee from anyone. Always when we would be inside of a place that we weren't supposed to be, there's kind of a feeling of haste that you need to absorb as much experience as you can uh, to get what you want out of it, but also like leave as soon as possible because the longer that you stay, the higher chance you have of coming across somebody or, you know, accidentally breaking something or just <laughs> uh, causing trouble, which is not the main objective. There's always the underlying fear of the police. I had no desire to <laughs> be caught in their firing range, picking up their bullet shells. I'm sure they would have totally freaked out and not understood my weird intentions. I'm sure they would have assumed the worst. We definitely discussed an escape plan or a contingency plan, because if something did go wrong and we needed to like scatter, we would know where to meet up that would be somewhere inconspicuous. We kind of explored the area, but there wasn't much to see. And then we started picking around the gravel, looking for morsels, <laughs> looking for bullet shells, uh, and whatever we could find. Littering the ground scattered throughout were brass shell casings, rubber bullets. We found a few bullets themselves. I, I assume they're hard to find because they bury themselves in things, but we found a couple um, and we started filling our pockets. When I, whenever I would uh, go out trespassing, I would wear this old fireman's jacket I bought at a flea market. It's just got massive pockets, a bunch of massive pockets. And uh, I was just filling my pockets with bullet shells we were there for no more than half an hour, and then um, we heard the sound of a car engine and saw headlights, and we kind of scurried into the shadow of the bungalow and looked out down the hill to the parking lot, and there was a car there that had pulled up and was idling, and it was blaring music, and it was clear that it wasn't the cops. It was a group of kids, probably roughly our age, 
that were just hanging out where there was no one to see them being what would probably be described as hooligans. <laughs> and at a certain point they started doing donuts, which made a lot of noise. <laughs> just a horribly loud screech, like the kind you could hear from blocks away. They were definitely just trying to enjoy the night as we were. Um, they just had a different style, different way of going about it. But we were very wary of them because we knew we were in a delicate situation. The kids doing donuts in the parking lot did more than increase the threat of someone calling the police. They changed the whole feel of the night for Henry and his friends, the other hooligans at the golf course. It's kind of a blanket of calm, a blanket of freedom that you don't want to violate with flashlights or yelling uh, because then you, you become an intruder at that point, not only to the night, but to the perceived security of other people that are also on their night walks and enjoying the calm and the cool. And uh, it's kind of like a library. <laughs> There's just that, that unspoken social law that you'll just be quiet and courteous and reverent, I suppose. But when uh, kids drive around and do donuts, they're using, they're using the emptiness of the night in a way that I don't necessarily agree with. I guess it's not hurting anyone personally, but, you know, they're destroying property and stuff. It seemed kind of just a nuisance. Whenever we would be out, whenever I'd be out trespassing, I'm clearly an interloper, but I also harbored this illogical disdain for people who were doing similar things. I mean, there's a hypocrisy there. <laughs> they had a different style, but still any external observer would have lumped us into the same category. So once the car arrived and started making noise, the mood shifted. The mood became more anxious. It became a situation that was uh, tense instead of just a carefree, relatively carefree adventure. It put a sense of urgency into our plans. As soon as that car left, we knew that we wanted to leave as well. So we waited for the car to leave, and then we um, skirted the building and got back up onto the roof and back down using that dumpster. It was actually pretty noisy on the way out. I remember the lid of the dumpster collapsed when one of us jumped down and we, we fell into the dumpster itself. <laughs> but luckily, <laughs> there was no one around. All of our pockets were full. I'd say we found at least 200 or so casings in various like small metallic objects. So we sounded like a bag of change. It definitely hampered our stealth factor. So we made it back over without incident and kind of faded back into the darkness of the golf course. And I, I love the feeling uh, after you leave a trespassing site with no incident, it's this huge wave of like calm and accomplishment. And uh, at that point, you feel like you're allowed to revel in the adventure you just had and talk about it with your friends not have to worry about being stealthy. So I remember just walking around and talking about it and comparing bullet shells, comparing treasures. Not surprisingly, all of the excitement of the night made the guys pretty hungry. Without fail, during these adventures, we would get hungry. 
one of the only places that was open in Walnut Creek at that hour would be Jack in the Box. So that night we opted for fast food and uh, went to the drive through got some burgers and soda and all that jazz. After we got the food, we decided we weren't tired enough to go home yet. So we decided to go to one of our favorite night spots, which was a private elementary school, also near the edge of town. It was a really nice elementary school campus. They had a lot of cool stuff like a water feature and tennis courts and all that. But the reason why we went at night, uh, what kept us coming back was that they had a giant chess set and they would often leave their pieces out overnight. So there's all these three foot high hollow plastic chess pieces with sand at the bottom that we would just hang out around and play chess with. It was definitely really late at night, uh, really early in the morning, and we were just sitting, eating burgers and playing chess, <laughs> having a blast. We got tired of all of our pockets jingling, so we used one of the empty bags from the fast food to put all the bullet shells in and um, continued to play chess. We'd probably been there for hours, but just like with when the car arrived at the firing range, there's a point whenever you're trespassing, if you're alert, to possible trouble. There's a point when you when you feel like you should leave. Um, even if it's not for any overt reason, you kind of get that tingle on your neck where like you stop feeling comfortable in a place. The creepy crawlies that you get, it's a feeling that you would never get in broad daylight, at least not in my experience, where somehow in the dark and the white noise of the breeze and the total absence of other civilized life, it just seems like your whole mental environment can shift without warning and all of a sudden your mood shifts into a sense of foreboding. It's, it's very primal, it's very visceral, it's often without conscious reason, but I've learned to heed those vibes <laughs> when trespassing. So. We decided to leave, we'd been there for long enough. I think we played three or four games of chess. We put the chess pieces back where they belonged and picked up our bag of bullet shells, which was in a jack-in-the-box bag, and headed back through campus and down this steep hill. There's only one road leading to and away from this private elementary school, and we had parked down a ways away on a gravel lot with the intention of having somewhere safe again, having somewhere to meet back up at if something were to go wrong. We all got in the car and Kevin was driving. He started the engine, pulled out. We were starting to play music and get warmed up. But as soon as we got back on the two lane road that went through this park area, a uh, police cruiser pulled out in front of us from behind the corner with their lights on and blocked our way. And then shortly thereafter, another police cruiser pulled in behind us and boxed us in. And that was pretty alarming. <laughs> Where seconds earlier there'd been darkness and just the ambient bloom of street lamps there were suddenly bright red and blue flashing lights ruining our night vision and bouncing off of everything. And 
lit up the whole interior of the car and it was totally unexpected because we had heard nobody seen nobody made very little noise through the whole time that we were up at the school so it took us by surprise I was very scared scared shitless I was definitely freaking out but um you know you kind of are just in the present and trying to understand what's going on because the police they came upon us very aggressively as if they thought we were in the act of some crime so obviously since <laughs> we had been at the firing range for the very same police department earlier that night I couldn't help but assume that they had followed us uh, somehow throughout the whole night and were just waiting, lying in wait, and had just ambushed us to bust us for all of our antics. And the, the police, they got out of their cars, came up to Kevin's car, Kevin rolled down the window, and there were two of them. One was a pretty portly, grumpy guy who's like the same exact person that you would expect to be a disciplinarian at a high school. Just like unrelentingly vicious in his tone. <laughs> Total lack of respect or empathy. <laughs> Perceived empathy. Just very nasty right off the bat. And uh, not a good listener. The other guy was younger and sort of just more passive. He didn't say much uh, during our encounter. But they were flanking the car the grumpy older guy was on the driver's side and the younger guy was on the passenger's side. They had their flashlights out, uh, hands on their guns, uh, of course. And uh, he said to Kevin, uh, he told him to take the keys out of the ignition and put them on the roof above his head, which is never a good sign. And uh, then we were prompted to give them all of our IDs and they started questioning us. We weren't really sure who should do the talking as a group. Like, we had not expected this scenario and definitely don't want to get into the details of earlier that night. Um, authority figures like that get pretty riled up. However casually, whenever you accidentally contradict yourself, it only leads to suspicion. They took our IDs back to their car and ran them through the system. We were all just freaked out and very quiet. They asked what we were doing there, what we'd been up to earlier that night. Questions that I definitely read into and assumed that they knew the answers to all of them and that we were in a lot of trouble. And then when they came back, they were shining lights in at us and um, I remember distinctly the older one asked the other, what do you see down there in the passenger footwell? And uh, he said, nothing, just some jack-in-the-box. And the, the only thing in the footwell was that fast food bag full of bullet shells from their firing range. They decided that we, we weren't a threat and they let us go and we drove away. After they let us go, we didn't really believe that we had gotten off the hook at first. And we pulled away first, but the police cars were right behind us and we were just still very tense, still very silent, um, expecting that the situation wasn't quite over, that they were somehow not done with us. But after they were out of sight, we 
allowed ourselves to be relieved that we had gotten away with everything and just like heaved huge sighs of relief and definitely just wanted to go home at that point and be in a place that we were allowed to be and just talk it over and you know raid the fridge and go to sleep and just be glad that we weren't in a holding cell. Crisis averted, the whole experience became one of those funny, scary stories you tell about the crazy things you did as a teenager. Despite the scare, trespassing does continue to bring Henry joy. Definitely. But there's a new wrinkle now. Society views trespassing by kids as a nuisance. It's not allowed, but it isn't seen as totally menacing. I'm 25 now. It's still a hobby of mine, in theory, but I'm kind of starting to feel like I'm old enough where if I were to slip up and actually have to face consequences, it would be not very much fun. I'm, I'm past the age where like people kind of write you off as a youngster who doesn't know better and starting to get towards the age where people actually feel very threatened by you. Also, I'm six foot five and I'm a guy, so I scare people. <laughs> people are like wary of me by default. I'm not like that scary looking or anything. I'm just tall and a guy. So I'm very conscious even during the day of making people uncomfortable. If I am on a run or on a walk and I start to walk up behind someone, especially a female, I'll just cross the street because I don't want to make them uncomfortable. Uh, just passing someone on the sidewalk, I, I know like raises people's hackles, especially at night. It's impossible to see someone on the street at night and just know that they're not a threat. Even if you have the best of intentions, outwardly, you're just a person in the dark. In the vacuum of night, everyone becomes an outlier, like a variable without context. Henry's figured out a way to get around this. Now, when he's drawn to discover how the mundane becomes magic at night, he just creates a context that doesn't threaten. When I do go trespassing now, it's always with a DSLR camera around my shoulder because I've found that it's a really good cover for people's perceptions. If you're in an abandoned building or in a condemned site or a construction site, people just assume you're a photographer there for the sake of art. And I'm not a photographer by trade. I do take pictures for fun during those situations, but it's mostly just cover or just like a signal to observers to say like, I'm not a burglar, I'm here because I'm aesthetically appreciating my surroundings. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Find out about all the music in this episode at our website, nocturnepodcast.org. While you're there, please consider donating to support the show. There are links to both Patreon and PayPal. Thank you to everyone who supports the show already, with your donations and also with your emails and your Facebook and Twitter posts. We read them all and we love you back. Nocturne is proud to be a member of The Herd, a collective of smart and beautiful storytelling podcasts. Find out more at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D. Thanks for listening.